came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to them? Say to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid of people, for they all held that John was So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treat him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. They still one another. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants say to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not heard this scripture? The stone that the builders reject have This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to them, and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness inscription is this? They say to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of God. Now, let me start with a few questions, right? Let's be honest. How many of you like being told what to do? Anyone? Any, anyone? All right. How many of you hate it when people tell you what to do? Can I see your hand? Okay. As you can guess, I hate it when people tell me what to do. Especially if I have to be told again and again. And that thing could be a very good thing. Like, for example, making sure the bathroom is spotless and there's not a single hair on the ground after each time I use it. True story. When I was told to do it the first time, I had the intention to do it. But me being a man, I forgot, right? The second time, I still wanted to do it. But when I'm being told to do the same thing again and again, there's something in me that whispered, hold on a second, this is my bathroom. We do not even share this bathroom. I am the one who's using it every single day. Who are you to tell me what to do with my bathroom? And then I heard another voice in my head, I am your mother, right? The more I'm told what to do, the more I do not want to do it. You guys know what I'm talking about? 
And let's be honest, we do not like it when people tell us what to do. We do not like it when people interfere with our life. And in today's passage, we find that Jesus will actually tell us what to do with our life, and we do not like it. Because here's what I find about Christians, all right? We have no problem with Jesus being our Savior. We have no problem with Jesus saving people from sins. But we have problem with Jesus being our King. Do you know what I mean by that? We have problem when Jesus tells us what to do with our life because we do not like it. But throughout the Gospel of Mark, we find that Jesus constantly interferes with people's life, which tells us something about Jesus and following Jesus. Here's what we must get. We cannot have Jesus as our Savior and not acknowledge Him as our King. We cannot experience His love and not submit to His authority. We cannot have Jesus who died on the cross for us and not interfere with our life. So today's sermon, actually, it's not very complicated. It's very simple, but it's very strong. So let me warn you. Today's sermon is not complicated, but it is very strong. Because this passage will actually challenge us whether you have Jesus as your king or not. But let me give you the context first, okay? If you remember our last sermon at the book of Mark, remember what happened? Jesus saw victory, and then he wanted to see some of its fruit, but he found none. And then what he did? He cursed the victory. Remember that? And this is not Jesus was having a bad day. That's not the case. This is not like, you know, Jesus like craving for some chicken nuggets for McDonald's. And then he, when he got to McDonald's, McDonald's ran out of chicken nuggets. And he was upset and he cursed it. And he said, may no one ever eat chicken nuggets from McDonald's anymore. Okay. And that's not what happened. Because Jesus used this victory illustration to show us, to show us the weight of sin, of hypocrisy among the people of Israel. So that's why when Jesus then went into the temple, he began to throw the people out, throw the merchants and the money changers out. And when the religious, religious leaders heard about it, they were upset and they were mad and they were seeking way to destroy Jesus. And these passages today tell us there's a struggle of authority between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this is not something new, okay? The religious leaders, they've been questioning Jesus' authority from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, remember? So the, from the very beginning, when Jesus began to teach Scripture, they questioned it, like, on whose authority are you teaching the Scriptures? So when Jesus began to forgive sin, heal the sick, break the Sabbath custom, cast out demons, and cleanse the temple, they questioned, on whose authority are you doing this? And finally today, they confront Jesus about it. Okay? That's my sermon. I have three points for my sermon. And I try to be creative this time, right? Like last time, my sermon point is like what? Three temple lessons, right? But this one, I hope you appreciate it, is very creative. The source of authority, the struggle of authority, the scope of authority. See? All S and all begin with author- and has something to do with authority, right? I try hard, man. You guys do not appreciate it? I try hard to make this sermon point, right? I could have just called it what? Another what? You know, tax or something. Let's look at it together. The source of authority, verse 27 to 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do this thing. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do this thing. So as soon as Jesus and the crew enter the temple, the religious leader immediately confront him. Because remember what, where Jesus is right now. Jesus is on the enemy territory. He's on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is the most authoritative place. And he's right now in confrontation with what we know as the Sanhedrin. Okay? If you do not know what Sanhedrin is, Sanhedrin is the most authoritative body in Israel. It consists of some of Pharisees, some of the Sadducees, and the scribes come together. 
So they come together to Jesus and they ask the question, by what authority are you doing this thing? Or who gave you the authority to do them? In other words, this is their question. They're asking Jesus, Jesus, where is your ordination letter? Where did you get your master of divinity from? Where did you get your training? What or who gave you the right to do what you do? Tell us, because the last time we checked, we do not see your name on the list. And we are the one who gave people credential and authority to teach scripture. We don't see your name on the list. Who gave you the right? And by the way, this is not a genuine question. This is a trap. Because their goal is actually to embarrass and discredit Jesus. Because remember, if Jesus say, hey guys, I actually don't have any credential, I don't have any Bible training, and I'm acting on my own authority, the moment Jesus say that, the crowd will immediately like, oh, what? This is not right. Then why should we listen to you? But then if Jesus said, I graduated from Heaven Bible College with Summa Cum Laude, and I got my credential from God, people will charge him with blasphemy. See? And the reason the religious leader asked him this question is not because they're curious about the source of authority. Oh, no, 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 they're not. Because the evidence is clear. I mean, they've seen Jesus throughout his ministry, and they understand one thing. Only one blessed with heaven credential can actually heal the sick. Only one who's blessed by God and favored by God and anointed by God can do what Jesus does. Make the lame walk, the blind see, the leper clean, the storm still, the multitude fed, and the dead rise. With other words, the evidence is clear before their very eyes. But here's the problem. They refuse to look at the evidence. Because they have made up their mind that Jesus is a threat to their authority and Jesus must be destroyed whatever the cost. So now when Jesus faced them, Jesus knows exactly what they're doing. So Jesus being Jesus, he said, all right. Well, I can answer that. But before I give you my answer, let me ask you one question first. If you answer my question, I will answer your question. And here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me, and I will answer you. And just like that, Jesus turned the tables around. Some of you might think, well, that's a strange answer. What does the baptism of John have anything to do with Jesus' authority? The answer is everything. I mean, this is not like when an older lady come up to me at a wedding and asks, Yos, when is your wedding? And I reply, old lady, when is your funeral? Okay. This is not a diversion tactic. This is a question that Jesus asked because Jesus has a point. Because think about it. It is at John's baptism that the heavens opened, the Spirit descended, and there's a voice from heaven. Remember what the voice say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is at the John baptism that Jesus, that God the Father, actually said, this is my Son. Listen to Him. Okay? So the baptism of John actually inaugurated Jesus' authority and empowered Him for ministry. And John himself said, Jesus is the Messiah the Lamb of God who take away the sin of the world. In other words, if the baptism of John is from men, then their accusation of Jesus justified. Jesus has no authority to do what he does. But if the baptism of John is from heaven, then Jesus' authority is from God. So the religious leaders are now stuck, right? They're like, oh, this is a hard question. So they, they're like, all right, Jesus, wait a second. We need to talk among ourselves, okay? So I can imagine they pull away and they make the unholy huddle, right? So one of them say, guys, this is not good, right? We can't say that it comes from heaven because if we say it comes from heaven, he will ask us, then why, would you, why don't you listen to me? But then another person say, but we can't say it's from man because if we say it's from man, the crowd will hate us because the crowd thinks that John is a prophet from God. And one person said, well, we have no choice, guys. The only thing that we can say is, I don't know, right? And then so they come up to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, we don't know. And let me tell you, that is flat out lie because they know exactly the answer to Jesus' question, but the problem is they don't want to admit it. And that is why Jesus said, 
Because you refuse to answer my question, then I won't answer your question either. Because the truth is, you know the answer. But you don't want to tell me because it puts you in a big dilemma. So what does it mean for us then? Don't miss this. I think oftentimes, the issue that we have with God, our main issue in our relationship with God is an authority issue. For many people, the problem is not a lack of evidence. No, it's not. The problem with us is something far different. The problem with us is ultimately we reject His authority. Because why? Because our heart loves something or someone else more than Jesus. See, I don't think any of us in here, if you come to church, we have a problem with Jesus being our Savior. We like that. We like the fact that Jesus saves sinful people. We like the fact that Jesus is on our corner cheering us. Come on, you can do it. Encourage us. Come on, you're awesome. I am with you. I am for you. We love that. But the moment we talk about Jesus being our King, the moment we talk about Jesus have the right to decide what we do with our life, we're like, hold on a second. Maybe not so fast. We do not want Him to interfere with our life. Isn't that true? Because deep inside of our heart, we want the right to decide what to do with our life. We want the right to decide with whom we're sleeping with. We want to decide what we do with our money. But let me tell you, church, it ain't going to work. Because when we refuse Jesus rearranging the furniture in our life, we are challenging His kingly authority. You guys know what I mean by that? Here's, I think, what happened, right? See, when the real Jesus showed up in your life, He's not going to say, hey guys, haven't seen you for a while, how are you? Peachy, awesome. You know, how's things in life? Oh, you've been doing this? Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. You know, I kind of wonder what should I do with you and with your life? How can I help you? Oh, you have this issue? Oh, you have that issue? Oh, awesome. But, you know, you know, let's see. Who do you want to marry? Oh, this person, that person? That person's not Christian? That's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm with you. I'm for you. See, that's the kind of Jesus that we want. We want the kind of Jesus who's with us, who is for us, who's actually, yeah, say yes to whatever we want. But the kind of Jesus that we see in the Bible is the kind of Jesus said, no, I don't talk like that. If I don't like the furniture in your house, I'm going to throw it away. You say, but, 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 but this couch has been with me for like 20 years, Jesus. You know, there's so many of my friends been sleeping on that couch. I've been playing on that game on, on that couch, you know, for years. And just like, trash it. And we don't like it. We don't like Jesus re-earning the furniture in our life. But here's the thing about Jesus. He does not need your permission to rearrange the furniture in your life. He is king. He's going to rearrange it whether you like it or not. He's going to move things around. He's going to tell you what you need to remove and what you need to add in your life. And until we bow down to his authority, you and I will never know him. And to make his point, he tells this strong, strong parable. Okay? Let's look at my second point, the struggle of authority. First one tonight. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and listed tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get, them, to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He has still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, well, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owners of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is very strong, okay? Jesus is not on the offensive. He's not holding back anything at all. And he tells this strong parable to make a point. And this parable is unique because usually, if you're familiar with Jesus' parable, usually Jesus tells a parable in order for people to not understand what he's trying to say. Remember that? But this parable 
is so clear. Everybody who listens to this parable, they understand exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Okay? It's, it's, you know, it's like, you know, have you been there, like, you know, when someone talks about you in front of you using aliases, they refer to you as so-and-so or Mr. X? You been there? It's awkward, right? And the religious leaders know exactly that Jesus is talking about them. Crystal clear. Here's the thing that we need to understand. In the Old Testament, vineyard is often used to describe Israel. So let me introduce you the characters in this parable. The owner of the vineyard is God. The tenants of the vineyard are the religious leaders. The servants sent by the owners are the prophets. And the son of the owner is Jesus. Okay? And the meaning is clear. When the owner entrusts the tenants to take care of the vineyard, the tenants cannot do whatever they want with the vineyard. Can we agree on that? Because that belongs to the owner. So what the tenants need to do is tend to the vineyard the way the owner wants them to do it. And they get paid for their work. But the profit belongs to the owner. Common sense, right? Let me put it in a modern way. Let's say you work at Kohl's as a manager. And you get paid $1,000 a week. Is that fair enough? $1,000 a week at Kohl's? Not good enough? All right, that's, I think that's pretty good. All right? Let's say it's $1,000 a week. The money is rightly yours. $1,000 a week. And let's say that in a parallel universe, I'm not a pastor, but I own the Kohl's that you work at. And my Kohl's is making a profit of $1 million a week. The profit is not yours. What is rightly yours? $1,000 a week. The rest, the profit belongs to me. But I trust you to take care of my calls. And one day, I sent one of my trusted leaders by the name of Tim to collect the profit from you. But rather than giving him the money, you and other managers decide to beat him up, perm his hair, and send him back to me empty-handed. And I think, well, that's strange. Why would they do that to Tim? Okay, fine. Let me send an older leader by the name of Martin. And instead of just beating him up, this time, what do you do? You dye his hair white and send him back to me naked. Some of you are wondering, did he dye his hair? No, it's natural. But what I did is I keep persisting and sending my, all my other leaders. What do you do? You continue to beat them up and even kill some of them. And this is exactly what the people of Israel did to all the prophets sent by God. Because Jeremiah was beaten on many occasions and thrown into a pit and then stoned to death. Ezekiel was murdered after preaching a sermon. Isaiah was put into a lock and cut in half. Habakkuk and Zechariah were stoned by the Jews in Jerusalem. Amos was banished. See, the religious leaders know their history. So let's continue. So after sending many servants and not succeeding, the owner finally only have one other person, his beloved son. Now, at this point of the story, if you hear the story, you're like, no, 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 no. don't do it, right? Don't do it. Do not send your beloved son because you know what's going to happen to him. It is a very bad idea. But the owner sent his son anyway to the tenants hoping that the tenants will receive his son. Because a son is, is not just ordinary servant. Can we agree on that? A son has the authority of the father. So the son has the authority of the owner. For example, if there's a riot in this church and Pastor Sam sent me to deal with it, it is different from me sending Mike and Edric to deal with it. By the way, if you do not know, when someone becomes RSR leader, there's a clause that says, I can use their name whenever I want in my sermon. Okay? So this is what happens. So the son goes as the father representative with the father's authority to the father's property to claim the father's shoe. Instead of honoring the son, you know what the people did? You know what the tenants did? They said, hold on a second. This is the heir. This is the son. If we kill him, this is our change. Because the vineyard will be ours. The prophet 
will be ours. And they kill the son. And get this. They don't kill the son because they don't know who he is. No, no, no. They kill the son because they know exactly who he is. They kill the son because they do not want to submit to the author of the son. They want a vineyard for themselves. And I think it's very hard for us to miss the identity of the son because Jesus called him what? A beloved son. Have we heard that before? There are twice in the Gospel of Mark where God the Father called Jesus, here's my beloved son. One at Jesus' baptism and one at Mount Transfiguration. With other words, when Jesus tells this parable to the religious leaders, he's telling a parable about himself. He knows exactly what they will do to him because in a matter of days, they will kill the beloved son. So here's Jesus' question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Because the son is the father's ultimatum. If they reject the son, no one else can be sent. And Jesus said, the owner will come and destroy the tenant and give the vineyard to others. What Jesus is doing, Jesus is predicting there will come a time that God the Father will destroy the temple, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, the very heart of Judaism, and give the vineyard to the Gentiles. And that will come true in AD 70 when the Roman destroy Jerusalem. But here's what Jesus says next, and this is crucial, verse 10 to verse 12. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is beautiful. What Jesus does here, Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. See, what happened was in Psalm 118, here's what happened. Uh, they were in the middle of building the Temple of Solomon, and there was this large stone that no one knew what to do with it. So one of the builders said, man, this stone is useless. This stone is too big. There's nothing we can do about it. We cannot use this stone for anything, so we need to remove it in order for us to be able to work. So it was, it was a stone that the builders rejected. But to everyone's surprise, that unwanted stone became the most important part of the building because that unwanted stone became the very stone they needed to support the building, and it is called the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone is what holds the building together. The stability and symmetry of any building depend on how good the cornerstone is. And here's what Jesus said, I am that cornerstone. I am that rejected stone. I am the murdered son. I am the son that you kill. But the Lord has made me a cornerstone of your salvation. And this is the story of the gospel. The rejected stone, the murdered son, become the cornerstone of our salvation. And throughout all of this, here's the thing that we see. God is in absolute control of every little things, including the rebellion of the tenants. So if we could ask God the Father, I mean, you're a dad, right? Why would you send your beloved son? Don't you know what will happen to him? He would say, that is exactly why I send my son. I sent him to die so that he might become the cornerstone of your life. And when the religious leader hears this story, they said to one another, Bastard. I think Jesus said to us, He knows what we're planning. He knows that we want to kill him. This parable is about us. Because they understand the parable clearly and they want to arrest Jesus immediately, but they cannot because they're afraid of the crowd. So they walk away. You with me so far in the story? So let me give you the most, what is the lesson out of this, okay? Because if we're not careful, we can go all high and mighty and condemn the religious leaders. But in fact, I want you to consider this. This parable is not only about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. This 
parable is the picture of our fallen nature. Because human history is a story of rebellion against God's authority. Human history is a story of tenants who act like owners. And this is our problem. See, the Bible is clearly tell us that we are not indifferent to God. Oh, no, no, no. We hate God. The truth is, everything we have right now belongs to God. He is the one who gives us life. He is the one who gives us the brain to think. He's the one who gives us strength to work. He's the one who gives us oxygen to breathe. He's the one who gives us everything we have in life. Our families, our husband, our wife, our children, our businesses, our possessions, our bank account. We are not the owners. We are simply tenants. But you know how our heart responded to that? We hate it. We hate the fact that we are accountable to God. Because here's our problem. All of us are tenants acting like owners. And my friend, this is what sin is. There's impulse in our heart that want to believe, no, 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 no. I got this. This is mine. I'm in control of my life. I got to decide what I want to do with my life. I am capable. This is my right to choose. Like parents, don't you see that in your little children? I mean, as soon as your child is able to walk, you know what they do? they refuse your hand. Isn't that true? I mean, as if, as soon as they're able to talk, they say, no, 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 no. I can do it on my own. I don't need your help. Even though what they did is simply make a mess. And we think that we will eventually grow up from that childish attitude. But we don't. See, that desire for self-sufficiency is there inside of us. We all think that we are capable on our own, while the truth is we can't even breathe a single breath without God's help. But we don't want to admit it. We don't want to believe it. So that's why we live in this dilemma. Here's the dilemma that we live with, right? On one hand, we know we are are tenants. We know that we owe everything to the owners. But on the other hand, we do not want to admit it. We want everything for ourselves. And because of that, there's a deep conflict arises inside of us. Because on one hand, we know we're not God. We know we're not in control. But on the other hand, we want to be in control. We want to be owners. And God graciously remind us, send me this messenger to us, remind us again and again, you are not owners. You are not in control. You know how he does it? Through life circumstances. He does it through what? Through heartbreaks. Through failed businesses. Through broken relationship. Through friends. Through sermons. But here's what we do. We kill those messengers. We ignore it. And we challenge God's authority over our life. Because we want our own independence. I told you the sermon's hard. But then, suddenly, there's a change in narrative, suddenly talking about taxes. But let me tell you, it's not a change in narrative. It is still talk about authority. Because through what comes next, Jesus will tell us the scope of his authority. Verse 13 to 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvel at him. Now, let me tell you, this story is beautifully woven to the point that sometimes we miss the point. But I want you to follow me because Jesus is making, making a strong point through his story. 
So the religious leaders, they continue to seek a way to trap Jesus, right? And this time, they send Pharisees and Herodians to trap Jesus, which is interesting because Pharisees and Herodians, they hate one another. Because the Pharisees, they hate the Roman government. The Herodians are in favor of Roman government. So they hate one another. But as you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they, they make this strange alliance, alliance together, and they come to Jesus. And they have this one of the gotcha questions. Okay, the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this different gotcha question in the book of Mark, right? Because they want to ask Jesus a gotcha question. What I mean by this is a, a question that put Jesus in a lose-lose situation. You know what I mean by that? Because no matter how Jesus answered that question, Jesus will be put in a lose-lose situation. And they, put, and they start with flattery. They start, oh, Jesus, you're so amazing. You're so great. You're, you're a man of integrity. But the irony is they don't believe a single cent of what they say about Jesus. Because if they do, they will have submitted themselves to Jesus' authority. But they don't. They simply want to trap Jesus. And they come to Jesus with one of the most controversial, hot topic of the day. A topic that is still a hot issue today. And here's the topic. Should we or should not pay taxes? Okay. By the way, this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer me. I don't want to know how many of you cheat on your tax. But can you see why this is a very controversial question? Because for you and me, even though we do not like to pay taxes we can still see benefit of paying taxes. Can we, can we agree on that? For example, in our country, Australia, Medicare. I mean, okay, we pay high taxes, but we don't have to worry so much about our health expenses because of it. I'm a living testimony of that story, right? Because my cancer treatment, you know, cost me zero. I paid nothing for my cancer treatment because the government covered all the costs for my cancer treatment. If it were not for Medicare, my parents would have to sell our house to pay for my treatment. But the question is, what if we don't see the benefit of paying taxes? What if the taxes are corrupted? What if the taxes are used to support our enemy? And this is why the Jews hate paying taxes. Because as Jewish citizens, they're paying taxes to the very people who take away their freedom and oppress them. And that is why the consensus of that day is you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. So it's a trap. Do you see why this is a trap question? Because if Jesus say they should pay taxes to Caesar, immediately the people will turn against him. But if he say they should not pay taxes to Caesar, he will get in trouble with RTO, Roman Taxation Office. It's like this. It's like when someone asked me a question a while back. True story. Yos, which Josh do you like more? Fernando or Ty? And I, that, that ain't cool, brother. I'm not going to answer that question. That's a trap question because no matter answer I put, it put me in a loose-loose situation, right? So I'm not Jesus. And some of you are like wondering, like, so what's your answer, Yos? I'm not going to tell you what's my answer. I'm not Jesus. But in right now, in this situation, you can imagine. So people are right now waiting for Jesus' answer. They're like, this is it. I want to know what Jesus said about taxes. They're holding their breath, and there's a dramatic pause. And Jesus probably think, oh my gosh, not again. When will these people learn their lesson? They did this to me again and again. And finally, Jesus said, all right, fine. Does any of you have a denarius? Bring me a denarius. I want to see it. See, a denarius is a small silver coin that is worth a day wage of work in Israel. And at this point in history, there's a face of Tiberius Caesar Augustus on denarius coin. So finally, someone gave that coin to Jesus. And Jesus asked the crowd, all right, whose likeness and inscriptions are on this denarius coin? And they replied, Caesar's. And what Jesus says next is extremely remarkable. 
it is still considered the single most influential political statement ever made. You know what Jesus said? Verse 17. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God's. And they marvel at him. Do you know why they marvel at him? Let me explain to you, okay? Do you know what Jesus does? So Jesus said like, all right, guys, do you see this coin? This is Caesar's coin. This is Caesar's money. So right now you are using Caesar's coin and Caesar's money. There's his face image on the coin. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, Jesus said, yes, you must pay taxes. And this is not only Jesus' word to the Jews, but it's also his word to the church in the 21st century. Because Paul tells us in Romans 13, that it's good and right for citizens to pay taxes to the government. Because every governing authority is assigned by God, including the evil Roman Empire. And it is the duty of every citizen to pay taxes. As much as we do not like it, we are called to submit to the governing authorities. So church, if you do not pay tax, this is a word for you. Pay your tax. Okay? Some of you are like, this is a weird sermon. Okay? But there's a point to it. So yes, Jesus said pay your tax. But Jesus does not stop there. Because if Jesus stopped, hey, guys, you need to pay your tax, the people will turn on him. But what's remarkable, what's happened next, because Jesus said, all right, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things, and to God the things that are God's. You know why this is so remarkable? Because the Jews know exactly what Genesis 1, 26, 27 said, that everyone is created in the image and likeness of God. So this is what Jesus said, okay? You see the denarius here? You see that coin? Whose face is it? Tiberius? So here's what you do. He's the one who minted the coin. His face, his image is stamped on the coin. So it's only right for you to give back what rightly is. But on your life, on my life, there's another image. There's another image stamped on you that is more clearly stamped than the image of Tiberius on a denarius. And that is the image of God who created you. You are created in the image and likeness of God. So here's what Jesus said. Give what rightly belongs to Caesar to Caesar and give what's rightly God to God. Which other word? He said, give your life to God. Give your total allegiance to God because you belong to Him. He owns you. Give Caesar your money. Give God your life. So yes, we have a duty to pay taxes to the government. But we have an even greater duty to God who created us in His image and likeness. We must give God what belongs to God. Which absolutely, which leads us to this question, what does belong to God? What is it that belongs to God? Absolutely everything. Our bodies belong to God. Our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet belong to God. Our time belongs to God. Our talents belong to God. Our money belongs to God. Our works belong to God. Our, our families belong to God. Everything we are and everything we have belong to God. The fact that we are created in the image of God is proof of God's ownership of us. It shows us that we belong solely to God. And this is the cope of Jesus' authority. When the religious leader hear this, they're like, how did he do that? It's unbelievable. I mean, we thought we put him on the corner. We thought we got him for sure this time. Either the crowd will hate him or the Roman government will get rid of him. But look what he's done to us. And they marvel. And let me land the plane this way. This text is communicating to us, listen, Jesus is a king. Jesus has authority beyond 
human authority. His authority is defined. That means for you and me, you only have two choices. Either we say, your will be done, you are king over my life. Or Jesus will say to us, your will be done. You want it to be honors, go ahead. But one day, the rightful honor will come and destroy you. There's nothing in the middle, my friend. So we either build our life on Jesus, our cornerstone, or we reject Him. That's the only choices we have. So either we become children of God, or we are the enemies of God. There's nothing in the middle. But the good news of the gospel tells us is that you and I, we don't have to stay enemy of God. You know why? Because let me tell you a story of another vineyard, another garden, Garden of Eden. See, in the Garden of Eden, this is the perfect garden where there was no death, no evil, no imperfection. Everything was beautiful. And then God trusted two persons to be attendants of the garden. You know who they are? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve was given the responsibility to take care of the garden. But you know what Adam and Eve did? did? Rather than fulfill their responsibility as tenants, they wanted to be owners. They rebelled against God's authority. And because of it, they were banished from the garden. And then God put an angel with a flaming sword to stop them from ever entering the garden. And until today, that is our story. We rebel against God, and we were banished from God's garden. And there's a flaming sword of God's eternal justice that stopped us from ever entering the garden. No one can enter the garden unless they pay the price of their sin, unless they pay for the wrong that's been done, and no one could survive that sword until the beloved son came. See, we were tenants acting like owners, but Jesus is the owner who came to give his life for the rebellious tenants. Because Jesus came and he took the sword of justice for you and me. He fell under the sword of flaming justice to pay the price of our rebellions. And Jesus, by dying at the cross, he satisfied God's demands for justice once and for all. So that the moment we put our faith in Jesus, is what happened. We have forever access to enter God's garden. We can now draw near to God. Can you see what Jesus does with his authority? Yes, he's a king. Yes, he demands our allegiance, but he is a king who uses his authority to save us. That is why we can trust him as our king. That is why we can trust him with our life, because he uses his authority to turn the enemies of God into children of God. So here's the question I'm done. If that's true, what is it? that holding you back from submitting to his authority today. Let's pray. I want to take this time to, for you to really introspect your heart right now. Because this passage is really strong. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior without acknowledging Him as your King. So maybe for some of you, right now in this place, there's not a moment, there's never a moment that you receive Jesus as your personal Savior. You are living in active rebellion against God's authority. And if that's you, a day is coming a day is coming that God will destroy you because of your sin. So I do want to encourage you, if that's you, if there's any of you who have yet to put your faith in Jesus as your personal Savior, today, do not delay. Today is the day that you accept Him into your life because He wants to save you. He came to save you. He died in order for you to have life. Or maybe there's other of you in this place who you kind of know Jesus as your Savior. Maybe there was time that you confessed that He is your Lord and Savior. But what happened was throughout the years, life happened. And you decided that you know better than Him and you rebel against His authority. 
And tonight, you're reminded that you cannot have Jesus as your Savior without accepting Him as your King. Or maybe for some of you, you're Christian. Right now, you're saying amen to everything I say tonight. You know your Bible. You know your theology. You know the gospel. you know, you know that you know there's part of your life that you have yet to surrender to Him. There's part of your life that you still hold back to yourself and you say, you know what, this is mine, Lord. This, I want to keep this for myself. And Jesus said, no. You have to give Him the right to re-erase the furniture in your life. So while every eye is closed, every head bowed, if that's you, if you are any of the three, right now, just raise your hand so I want to pray for you. Just lift up your hand really, really high. I just want to see you. Okay, you can put your hands up. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray. For some of us, it might be first time, Lord, we confess you as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe for some of us, it's the call that to return to you, to come back to you and submit our life to you. Or maybe for us, Lord, it's about that thing that we've been hiding, that thing that we've been wanting to keep for ourselves, and today, you want it from us. And we surrender to you. Whatever it is, Holy Spirit, I pray that you who begin the good work in their heart, that you who speak to their heart today will continue your work in their life. I pray that the gospel will not just be a good news that we hear with our ear, but it's a good news that transforms our heart so that we may live only for you and your glory. So do that in our heart, Holy Spirit. Do that heart surgery and turn us, transform us into your image more and more. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.